Human beings are very good at filling time. I will go into meetings and say, what are we here to achieve in this next 30 minutes? If we cannot define it, let's abandon the meeting. If you're about to write an email and you cannot clearly say in the title, what is the objective of that email? Don't write the email. The Startup Sensations Podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. With me, Bulent Osman, still just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the Northern California coast, as usual. Hi, Bulent. How are you? Very well, Shelley. And today uh, we've got somebody to warm our hearts. And he's a chap called Faris Aranki. And I met Faris um, last year. And he is a very inspirational international coach. He's worked with some very large and small businesses, and he does all all manner of leadership training. And he's uh, he's full of passion, full of energy, and full of uh, actual experience and inspiration. Yeah, you know, I've read a little bit about him online, and it looks like his experiences are extremely varied. Um, He's not just coaching startups, for example. He is working with big corporations, medium, small, small teams, bigger teams, management teams. I'm eager to hear his philosophy and, and how he approaches all of those different groups. And I'm delighted that Faris Aranki has now joined us from central London. Faris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bullen. It's a real pleasure to be with you both today. Yeah, nice to see you, Faris. Nice to see you too, Shelley. Well, Faris, we are, we're obviously very pleased to have you today. And uh, you are the founder and CEO of Shia Ghetto Consulting. Could you tell us a bit about your consulting firm and, and what is it you do? Yeah, and expertly pronounced, uh, Bullent. Uh, Thank you. It's almost like sitting opposite a Japanese person. Do you know what? It, it is a Japanese name uh, for a company. I am not Japanese, um, but the reason I named it as a Japanese name is perhaps an indication of what we do. But Shigeto is the Japanese word for a sharpening stone. Okay, it is the stone you use for the finest sharpen on a knife or a pair of scissors or a samurai sword, perhaps. And uh, it's a great metaphor because what we do is we sharpen companies. We sharpen their strategies. We sharpen their people. That's the kind of consulting we do because um, I don't know if you've ever had this problem, but uh, coming up with a strategy is easy, but getting people to buy into it and getting people to do it is the hard part. And now I used to be a strategy consultant, you know, 12 years as a big brain, realizing that um, it all falls apart uh, if people aren't bought into it, people aren't doing it day to day. So that is the part that we focus on as a consulting firm, making people better at that, getting teams working better together and aligning around strategy. When we met last year, I was struck by a a formula that you have to hang all of your consulting strategies and uh, learnings around. Uh, So can you just share that formula with, with our listening audience? Yeah, I'd love to. We, what we've been able to distill is that to be successful, first of all, you've got to start with having an objective or a vision. Let's start there. Let's help you define where you want to end up. But to get there, you're going to need three components. You're going to need IQ, EQ, and SQ. Now, IQ is the ability to come up with the best solution, the best answer to get you to wherever you want to get to. And if that's not sharp enough at the start, it's going to be hard to achieve your goals. So we help you sharpen that. The second component is EQ. Right? It's all good and well having a great idea or a great solution. But if you can't take others on the journey with you, that's where the emotional intelligence comes in. 
Okay, and if you're having struggle, if you're having difficulty there, we can help you sharpen your EQ. And the third component that many people might never have heard about is this focus quotient, FQ. Okay, it's the ability to focus on what's important to deliver your idea or solution that you said is going to get you to your goal. So IQ, EQ, and FQ, you need all three. That's where they're multiplied, not added. Um, and uh, if you're lucky in one, unfortunately, as any maths teacher will tell you, multiplying anything by zero means zero. So uh, we'll help you in all three dimensions. I'd like to drill down a little bit into those three components, but could I actually start with emotional intelligence or emotional quotient? Sure. Can you define what emotional intelligence really is and how it relates to startup businesses? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, I mean, you, you go out into academia, you'll find a lot of different definitions of emotional intelligence, but effectively, it's, a, it's the ability to spot and recognize what emotions you are going through and others are going through. So that's the first part of emotional intelligence, uh, how you respond to things. The second part is how you manage that, right? How you manage yourself in emotional times and how you react when you see others around you are emotional. Now, why that's important to strategy is it's all good and well. You know, A lot of us as leaders or as individuals, we spend a lot of time doing what I call broadcasting. We get out what's in our head. We don't think about and spend as much time thinking about the absorbing or the receiving from the other person. And that's where great emotional intelligence comes in when it comes to strategy. Because if I say something and you don't get it, right, I might think, brilliant, we're all on the same page. But you've walked away thinking, I don't understand that at all. And that's why it's crucial to actually think in the other person's shoes, try and make sure that they have understood. And that's where great emotional intelligence comes in, as far as I'm concerned, in this domain. And if you want to know what you know, who has great emotional intelligence, it's probably the friends, the colleagues that you have around you that you love spending time with, right? The ones who know what to say at the right times, the ones who are, who just seem to be able to brighten up a mood or, or or tap into things. Those are people, whether they know it or not, have great emotional intelligence. So, Faris, when you when you go and you meet a team, yeah. and you do an assessment of the emotional intelligence, because these are not people that are necessarily friends or want to spend time together, but these are people working together, obviously. Yeah. I would imagine the construct of some teams, it's there, you, you know, it's not too hard a thing to focus on. But for others, I would imagine it's kind of difficult. So give us some examples of when you went into a team and you went, uh-oh, emotional quotient, I need work on this. Yeah. Uh, what did you do? and What did it feel like? Oh, I could give you countless examples, right? And and many people aren't aware that they lack uh, uh, emotional intelligence or, you know, or, or the ability. So let's start, let's start with the senior guys, right? Often I get asked to come into a company with the phrase that goes something like this. Hey, Faris, can you come and work with us because my team isn't quite working right? You know, I'm fine, but my team's not working right. And I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> it's them. So it's exactly, them. Shelley, you, you've got it, right? You go in and you talk to the team. You say, well, what's not quite right? And they all point their finger. They go, it's that guy sat in the room over there. And, you know, I'm a little bit tongue in cheek, but often that is the case. The leader is unaware. Now, I'll give you a great example. I once worked with a team to help them. You know, the boss asked me to come in. He said, look, I'm having real difficulty getting us all aligned on a strategy for the next year. Uh, can you come in and just run a, a day's workshop for us? So I ran the workshop and we got to the end of the day. And I said to him, how do you think that went? He said, I think that was brilliant. You know, we've got a clear strategy. Everyone's bought in. I said, okay, I think the opposite, you know, and uh, I, fortunately, I've recorded the whole session. So I'm going to play it back to you. And he said, well, why do you think it wasn't successful? I said, okay, how much do you think you spoke versus the team spoke? 
during the meeting. Put, give me an estimate of a percentage. And he said, well, I think it was about, I spoke 30% of the time. Well, thankfully, to, due to AI, you can actually get the transcript of the meeting. Turned out he spoke over 80% of the meeting. <laughs> I said, okay, question, question number two. I said, how many times have you shot down somebody's idea or answer as soon as they said it? He said, oh, I don't do that a lot, Paris. I said, okay, okay let's watch the video and count. <laughs> you know, we got to over 80 times that he did. Somebody said something, he went, no, that won't work. Wow. How did he respond? He initially went very quiet. You know, I left it at that. I didn't want to push him. And he rang me a week later and said, if what you said to me was true, how do I go about changing it? And that's when I thought, brilliant. He's, he, he's taken a week to observe it. Because a lot of people might have done that. You know, I've been in similar situations where they've absorbed it and still denied that there was a problem. Interesting. Okay, so at least he was open. And, and then we moved into, okay, let's find some ways. But crucially, what I said to him, as I said, I said, it's not just about you making changes. The team also needs to change because you've been working this way for three, four years. It's a bit like an adult and a child. You switching to being a peer, they also need to learn to grow up a bit. They need to learn to find their voice. So it's not just all the work can't just be on you. And that's what we spent the next three months working together, as well as getting the actual plan out, working those team dynamics to make sure in the future they just work, work better together. One of the things we've heard from another guest is a reason why many companies fail, tech companies fail, is because the founder is in love with the solution and there really wasn't a problem. Is that part of what you look at in the intelligence quotient? That is part of what we do, right? But as I say, it all starts with where you want to get to. So the biggest problem I find is people have not defined that enough. They just start doing something. So that's like you said. I just really want to make this. I would just really want to do this. So let's just get going doing it. Can you give us an example of that, uh, Faris, where you work with a, a founder or a company that, that had that problem? Uh, how did it manifest itself and, and how did you solve that issue? So often I just start with the what's the vision? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Okay. And I can give you lots of examples of people just doing stuff. And, and this is a question. If you work with me, you'll find me asking that not just at the macro level, what are we trying to achieve as a company? But literally, I will go into meetings and say, what are we here to achieve in this next 30 minutes? If we cannot define it, let's abandon the meeting. Human beings are very good at filling time. But if we do not have clarity, let's stop this meeting now. And it's the same thing I tell my team. If you're about to write an email and you cannot clearly say in the title, what is the objective of that email? Don't write the email. Unless you have that clarity. Now, I always go back to a great quote by Albert Einstein, who said, if I only had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 59 minutes working out what the problem is, because then it's easy. He said, too many people spend 59 minutes doing stuff and they won't save the world. That is where all IQ things start. If you cannot explain to me clearly, simply what you want to achieve, what you want to solve, then let's spend time here because that's very important. If your assessment is such that they really aren't organized around this point, they really aren't cohesive, how do you, how do you help them? So there's two factors. One is Keep drilling down. It's like being an annoying child with the five whys or the five, what do you mean by that? You know. So if it was an individual and they said, I just want to be a better person, that's my vision. I'd be like, sorry, what does that actually mean? How am I going to measure that? How can I help you? You know. So it's all going back to the smart objectives and keep chipping away. What does better mean? Does it mean better at languages? Does it mean better in health? And it could mean both those things, but define it, be clear, right? And I always say the acid test is you should be able to go to someone who doesn't work in your industry, is non-technical, maybe like a seven-year-old, and they get it when you say, this is what I want to achieve. Now, the second challenge is when you have a group of individuals, they all have a different view in their head. 
Now, I often do what I call the 20-word test. When I get a group, a senior team, I say, okay, on a post-it note or a piece, you've got it in 20 words or less, right? What is your objective? What is your vision? And we are not leaving this room till those at least 15 of those 20 words align between all the post-its. <laughs> and even better, if you can say it without the post-it, it says you're not a parrot learning it for parrot fashion. You want to genuinely believe this is what I want to do. Now, let me tell you about a time I worked at a startup. There were four founders and I walked into the room and I said, uh, well, before the meeting, I said, can you share your vision? And can you share what you've been working on the last three years? They sent over all this documentation. And I read this and I said, their vision said something along the lines of, we want to do engineering projects that will help save the planet or sustainability. And then I looked at the projects they've done in the last three years. They had nothing to do with sustainability. <laughs> there was a random project here. There was a random project. So I walked in the room and I said, look, one of two things is happening here. Either you are not sure on what your vision is, or you are crap salespeople and you end up with the wrong projects that don't align to your vision. Either of these is not a great place to be. So where are we? And there was silence in the room for five minutes. And then one of the guys goes, I just want to retire by the time I'm 50. <laughs> and someone else went, yeah, I just want to make a lot of money. And I said, okay, now we're getting some honesty. Now it's not my place to judge whether that's a valid vision or not. But I said, but guys, what you're doing by writing this other vision on your website is sending false signals to your employees, your clients. Now don't write on your website, we just want to retire rich by 50. But, but at least write something that's a bit more credible. And then you can hang your hat on it. You can go and chase projects legitimately going, that's what we're doing. That's why we're attracting people to this firm. Okay, now that's what I'm interested in. An honest and, and something that can be said from the heart that everyone is brought into and aligned to. Because you can see what would happen with a company like that. Nobody's really clear. So everyone goes off and does their own thing. And then it all comes back and creates confusion. One of the problems that I've come across a lot is actually the lack of clarity around positioning and messaging, which obviously cascades from the vision. So, so could you go down to that level and tell us, Give us some stories around some challenges that you faced. And again, what did you do to overcome those challenges? I see time and time again, confusion. I say confusion is one of the biggest, and this is an FQ problem uh, as we talk about it, a focus question. Because if you have eight senior leaders or however many senior leaders and they all leave the room with us, even a 1% difference in their point of view, when they go and walk the floors and talk to their employees and think, particularly in big firms, those, that 1% gets compounded. I'll often do a really simple exercise with, with a, a team. I say, I'm about to tell you six words. I want you to write down a number based on what I've said, and then we're going to compare numbers. Uh, the, the six words I'm going to say is, it's probably going to rain tomorrow. So on a scale of zero to 100%, what percentage do you think it's going to rain? Now, I guarantee you get a group of people, depending on their upbringing, their culture, they'll hear that same phrase, and somebody in the room will write zero, and somebody in the room will write 100%. And I say, look at you. You've all heard exactly the same six words, but you've all interpreted it completely different. Imagine how many words are involved in a regular conversation. No wonder if you guys do not double check with each other, did you mean this? Even if it sounds very simple, just reinforcing, you're going to all walk out of this room at least 1% different to each other. And that's going to have a massive impact in your business. And I saw that once in one of my clients where the CMO and the CFO had both been in the same meeting, but had understood something different. And it was largely based on their biases. One really wanted to focus on one thing and one another. And they'd heard the CEO say something and they both latched onto it in their own way. And they'd both separately been briefing their teams to do something different to the other team. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just stop this now. Right, let's get you back in a room. Make sure you are on the same page because this is about to end in chaos.
hear from a lot of people how important diversity is, diversity of thought, diversity of action, diversity. How do you balance healthy diversity of thought with needing people to be in some ways in lockstep towards a vision? Well, when it comes to vision or a strategy, if you have a clear objective and yet brainstorm it, right, debate it, then the best fun part of strategy is coming up with as many ideas, many ways to get you there as possible. Now, this is where we help companies a lot because too many people just pick the first idea or they pick the leader's idea because he's the boss, <laughs> he's got the title or she's the boss. What they don't go is, do you know what? I need 100 ideas and then I'm going to pick the best one. How do I get 100 ideas? I ask 100 people. I ask more people rather than less. So I get a diversity of ideas. Because I always say it's better to have 100 ideas and pick the best one than to pick, have two ideas and pick the best one. Because what if those two ideas fail? You've then got to go back to the drawing board. In the 100 situation, you've still got 98 ideas to work with. And some ideas come from less field places. Now, I can talk a lot about where I've seen this and how I've helped encourage this out. But this is my favorite part because every team should be coming up with at least 100 ideas. And that's where we help massively. And people go to me, we're not creative enough. There aren't 100 ideas in our industry. I'm like, that is a load of horse stuff. Yeah, horse <laughs> stuff. There is infinite ideas. You're only bounded by the, your way of thinking right now. So go and get someone else who thinks differently to you. Which is diversity. Which is diversity. You know, I do a lot of war games, Shelley. One is, is a competitive war game where you take a strategy that you have developed and you test it before launching it. So you test it in a competitive environment. So let's say... You've got company A who say, we're going to dominate this market by being the cheapest company out there. Okay, sounds great in a boardroom. How do you think your competitors will respond? Yeah, let's play a game to see what happens. Because what if they drop their price? Are you going to keep dropping your prices and drop it even if it's cost? So let's play it out. And so I set up these war games. It could be to test a new product. It could be to test a new marketing idea, a new strategy, you know, cost, a pricing strategy, whatever. And I've done, I do these all the time. And the same thing happens the first time we play. We learn absolutely nothing because everyone just plays in the way that their market currently operates. I'll say, can you get me a team who think differently to you? And usually it's the graduates. I'll usually go and get a team of graduates and I'll say to them, do you want to beat your bosses? And do you know what the first thing they'll say to me is, can we cheat? I go, of course you can. You can do whatever you like within the room, right? So they'll walk into the room and they'll say, we're going we're gonna to lobby the government to make your product uh, illegal so that you can no longer be the cheapest. And the CEO will go, that's not fair. I said, this is what we're here to learn. You know, all the things that could stress test you. And it happens every time. And then the CEO of the team will go, right, well, if they're doing that, we're going to do this. And they roll up their sleeves. And suddenly I'm like, now we have a game. Now we're learning. Now we're testing strategies. Now we're coming up with new ideas. But it always, always happens. We have to go through that first phase where I'm like, we've learned nothing. Let's get some people who think differently to you. So do you find that there are certain sectors you find easier to work with or people are more open and others where they're a little more somehow bound by tradition or whatever? I don't think it's defined by an industry. I think culture is a big part, whether you're open to um, challenge from others, you're open to new ideas. I think it's also the strength of the team. You know, what I always say, I, you know, in Shear Ghetto, we work with big corporates and we work with startups. And in the big corporates, it's usually hierarchy, silos. These are the things you have to overcome, ingrained behaviors that are terrible. And do you know what? I love working with the startups because they usually all have a great culture and that's not their problem. It's not, hey, we, I, you know, I can always tell that guy to shut up. I, I, I know how to listen to him. <laughs> it's more that they, they're overloaded and they need help prioritizing and help going, 
actually you cannot do all these things so you have to let go of at least half of them and they find that really hard they're like but we want to do this and we want to do that and we and you're like i'm sorry guys you know that's where i'm going to help you and when i say culture it's not just i come from this country it's i've always been in this environment so i've always been taught to think like this so you know in some ways i like people who are willing to look left when everyone's looking right. Mm. Do you know the story about the perfect um, interview question that Google researched once? No. No, go ahead, tell us. <laughs> so Google wanted to find out what was the perfect interview question if you could only ask one question in an interview that would um, determine whether someone would be successful in Google or not. They went back and analyzed all the questions that ever asked interviewees and correlated it against their future success in the company. <laughs> so did they go on to do great things? And they did come up with one question. And the question was this simple, which internet browser do you use? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what they were looking for, anyone who answered, I don't know, not a Googler. Anyone who answered, oh, I use whatever came on the computer, not a Googler. They were looking for somebody who went, it came with this, but I use this because it is better. Or it came with this, I assessed the other options and I stuck with this, right? So it could have been any question that shows somebody who looks, that raises their head and goes, what else is happening out there? Those are the kind of people that we all like working with. Well, I like working with. They, you know, I call it a growth mindset. Somebody who's willing to challenge you go, hang on a minute. Maybe there is something else. Let's just spend five minutes exploring it before we push on with this idea. How do you define good leadership? You can only be a leader if you have a follower. So you'll know good leadership because people will want to follow you. Uh, now, what makes people follow you is they're inspired by you. They believe what you're saying. They enjoy working with you. You know, So I think those are the aspects for me that I tend to see time and time again in the, in the best leaders that I work with. You're not a leader just because you call yourself a leader or because you change your title on LinkedIn to leader. It can only be defined by others, is my belief. And in terms of your coaching of leaders to be better leaders, yeah. what are some of the uh, typical areas of improvement that you find that most leaders who have got some experience, but obviously not maybe the finished article, where do they have to improve? So it is that um, flexing of style. You know, a lot of leaders got to where they are to be successful using one dominant style. Like I'm really good at telling people what to do. I'm really good at logic of being the technical expert in the room. And that's great. And there is no one of those that is better than the other, but the real skillful leaders are able to flip through each of those depending on what the other person sitting opposite them needs or the room needs. So if the room needs someone to direct them and just tell them what to do, they'll move into that. But if at the same time, the room needs compassion and then for them to shut up and listen, like I was trying to encourage that leader from the story earlier, or if they need someone to step up and be a visionary, and sometimes they need all four different styles in the same conversation. That's the really difficult thing. But a great leader knows how to do that instinctively. You know, I always encourage people, the sooner they move away from the golden rule that you're taught as a child, which is treat others how you want to be treated, to the platinum rule, which is an upgrade, which is treat others how they want to be treated, the better you will become as a human being. Forget, forget being a leader. And people, you'll just find people love spending more time with you. How would you define a really, really vibrant and really positive culture, especially in, in smaller startup businesses? Yeah, I think the positive culture comes from a an environment where, you know, you'll hear the phrase psychological safety, but it's, it, it's basically where people can be their best selves, can feel they can challenge other members of the team. You know, so it's not just, it's not about everyone just being in agreement. It's about being, being fine to 
to say, I disagree, have a conversation about it um, and, uh, and then carry on working side by side. It's the ability to trust your team if you divide up rules. Not everyone can be involved in everything. I see this in the early days of teams. They all like, oh, you know, let's all work on it together. No, let's play to our strength. Let's have that confidence, that culture where we, I trust you to do your job. You trust me to do my job. All these factors go together to make a really high-performing culture, high-performing team. Once you reach there, it's like a relationship. You have to work on it every day. You don't just reach the top of the mountain and go, hey, we've got the perfect culture now. It's brilliant. We can now just you know, focus on that. Because I see that problem in teams as well. They're like, oh, this is tricky. And how do you sustain it then, Faris? What are some of the key principles of sustaining a decent culture and make it even better? So for me, there's two aspects. One, that's the leader's job, or, or it should be somebody's defined job to continue go around and be that glue, check in. And then the second thing is acknowledge that it will sometimes disintegrate. So a leader's job is to accelerate it back to being a good place. Now, I talk about it being the forming, storming, norming, performing curve, if you've ever heard of that curve. It's about the dynamics when a, any team, and it could be two people to 200 people come together. I often talk about it, it's a bit like dating, right? When you first come together, you, let's say your performance is zero to 10, you're on a seven out of 10 because you're on your best behavior, you turned up to dinner in your best suit or best dress, you're sucking in your belly, so you're not seeing, you know, you're know, you telling your funniest jokes. So you get a seven or an eight out of 10, but eventually you, you, get, you know, get relaxed and your belly starts hanging out. You start actually behaving how you behave and performance goes down, you start irritating the other person, okay? And that's the that's the storming phase, and you've hit rock bottom, right? And it's only at rock bottom that you do the forming stage where you say, look, I don't like it when you do that. You know, I'd rather you do that. Can we find a way of working forward? And then you take off, and you hit the performing stage, and you hit 10 out of 10, right? So that's that cycle. Everyone goes through it. Now, when I said you get to the top, things, something happens, and you go back to the start. It's like snakes and ladders. You know, a new team member joins. The, you change an office. You just, Now, the job of the leader is... Get them through that the next cycle quicker than the first time. And it's, I often tell teams, force yourself through this cycle more times now when it's a safe time before you're in a cost-cutting environment or a stressful economic environment and you have to still go through that cycle and it's a lot more painful. So that's the job of a good leader to, to accelerate getting through that curve. How did you get to this point in your life where you have these kinds of gems of wisdom to offer people? Well, first of all, if you could just tell my parents that I have so much wisdom to offer, that would be great. <laughs> okay, I will. But no, all jokes aside, I actually started my career as a high school teacher. So I used to teach uh, high school math and economics. If you think boardrooms are scary, <laughs> go and try teaching high school math and economics, right? An 11-year-old who does not love math will tell you pretty quickly and depending which school you're in, you know, they might say fruity language uh, that they don't enjoy it. Right? So you have to learn a lot of people skills to be effective in that environment. And I didn't realize at the time that's what I was learning. I just was trying to make my life easier on a day-to-day -day basis, picking up little tips from other teachers, from great teachers, in fact. Yeah. And, and alongside that, I, my five years of teaching was across four different countries. So I experienced different cultures because I wanted to explore the world. That's actually why I got into teaching, not because uh, I wanted to be a teacher. And after five years, I realized that. And I thought, actually, I always wanted to be in business. So I'm going to switch over to the business world. And uh, what I learned in that switch was it was very hard to resell myself as a teacher entering the business world. I remember applying for about 40 jobs online and none of them replied back to me. And I got one letter finally one day from an HR director saying, I don't know why you applied for this job. You're a teacher. You should stay being a teacher. Oh. 
And that really taught me a powerful lesson about labeling and, you know, lack of sort of people wanting to think outside the box. So I stopped calling myself a teacher. I rebranded myself. And actually, I had to swallow my own pride and start again. So although I was in my late 20s, I joined a graduate scheme with a bunch of 20-year-olds straight out of university. And I said, well, if that's how I got to get into business, that's how I got to get into business, right? And so from there, I used it as a springboard. And I, I got drawn into strategy. I then got approached into strategy consulting. And uh, the rest is history, right? And I did that for 12 years and then realized I wanted to set up my own company. So it's just a combination of experiences, knockbacks, uh, looking back and reflecting on how I could be better and then packaging it all up so I could help others be better. Could I just pick up on something you said there in terms of four countries? Uh, can, can you share with us what those four countries were and what are some of the cultural differences between those particular countries? Yeah, so I uh, I taught, uh, so it's a random set of countries. So I taught in El Salvador for a couple of years in the British school out there. Right. Uh, I taught in Nepal in a village school in the Himalayas. Uh, I taught in Palestine uh, in a university. And then I taught in North London in an inner city school. And uh, by far and away, the one in uh, North London was the worst. Uh, so, um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it actually was. And so, yeah, if you think about those four places, very, very different in terms of the countries, the kids that I taught, the age ranges. Uh, so I've been fortunate to teach from, from seven to uh, 27, but that was all in the spirit of adventure. And in terms of today, dealing with different cultures in business, what experiences have you had and what are some of the similarities or, or differences between different maybe languages and certainly cultures in different countries? Do you know what? I had two stories to tell here. I'm going to tell the one about the US versus the UK. I once read in a book, so I'm, I'm forever reading and, and absorbing new knowledge. That's another side of me. So every day, even today running a business, I'll read for at least an hour. But reading is nothing if you don't do something with the knowledge. So I once read this article about a bunch of British salespeople who all had to follow a script and they all were, were sort of mediocre at their job. And they told them for the next week, we want you all to do your job, read the same script, but put on an American accent. <laughs> so they measured their sales before and they measured their sales afterwards. And what they discovered afterwards was everybody, even the lowest performer, improved by 20%. Were they selling to other British people? They were selling to British people, yeah. Okay. And the top performer improved by like 300%. Right. And so when they brought them back in and they were like, how is this? You had to do exactly the same process. What they unearthed was that Brits imagine Americans to be more confident. So by putting on an American accent, even if it's a bad one, they took on this persona of more confident. They would they wouldn't accept no as an answer. They would, you know, they would have better responses. They would do. So I read this and I was like, I'm going to try that with my next team. Right. So the next team I had who had a roadblock, I said, OK, I want you to role play as somebody else. Right? And do you know what? It only a jam work. <laughs> Just changing the mindset. And it doesn't have to be an American. I often say, imagine the most confident person you know, or imagine the best storyteller you know, or imagine, depending on what their roadblock was. So I always found this fascinating that you could, if you can slick a switch in somebody's head, you can get them to be more powerful, more effective than they are currently. So I'll need to practice Shelley's accent then. That's the thing, isn't it? We, 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 should, we should do role play. Yeah, but you'll never, you'll never master it like me. You should do a job swap <laughs> for the next uh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the other story? The other story I was going to tell was, um, so currently I'm, ro I'm rolling out a leadership program for a large global uh, consumer products company. And they've asked me to take the same material to their different regions in the world. So I was over in Singapore training a bunch of uh, Asia Pacific managers, uh, senior leaders, 
I was in Ethiopia training a bunch of African senior leaders. Uh, I was in Holland training a bunch of European senior leaders. And uh, I was in Miami training uh, the American leaders. And what's absolutely fascinating, the same content, it's not it's not that having to change the content. They all need to learn how to do prioritization and strategic, but I have to change how I teach it, right? So I'll give you an example. You know, a very classic thing I'll do, I'll explain a piece of theory and I'll say, what do you think about that? I'd love to get your opinion. Now, if I do that in Asia, what happens? Everyone in the room will physically turn and face the most senior person in the room because they're not going to speak until that most senior person has said something. Hmm. Whereas in Africa, for example, everybody immediately just speaks out and they all want to tell you their view and they'll talk over each other. So when I'm in Asia, the technique I have to use is I have to break everyone up into twos of an equal level. So then they actually have a conversation about it. So there is no senior, right? So you have to be aware of the culture and sort of just change the process around it. Whereas in Africa, I have to say, right, we're only going to hear from three people. I'll pick the three people. and You're not allowed to speak for more than two minutes in order. And they don't mind. They don't mind being told what to do because they, they realize, you know, in the room, they realize, oh, yeah, if you left us to ourselves, we'd all just be talking over each other. We'd never. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's where being culturally sensitive and knowing what the and it doesn't have to be a country it's just flexing to what that team needs is what i say Paris, can i take you now into the future uh, can, can you look in your crystal ball because i'm sure you have one <laughs> and tell us you know in 2024 and beyond how you see things shaping up in the business world especially with the rapid rise of uh, technology, obviously artificial intelligence being one, but many other things as well going on in the world. So if 2024 on, onwards, yeah, what's it looking like? Well, I mean, 2024 will be like every year has its uh, has its backdrop of challenges and things, you know. For, so for business, you ask people, the macroeconomic environment it still isn't stable. So hopefully that will improve. But a lot of that is contingent on where inflation goes, what happens in sort of geopolitics. But there is the factor in both the two major democracies of the UK and the US of an election upcoming. And and what I see in that scenario is a lot of people delaying big investment decisions, which kind of filters through to companies like me. My big clients will say, oh, yeah, yeah, can we come back to that? Initially, it was, can we come back to that in 2024? I can imagine I'll now say, can we come back to that in the sort of spring 2024? And it might be summer 2024. But uh, let's take the more interesting thing, which is decoupled from the macroeconomic environment. You say AI. I mean, I don't know about you, Bullen, but every time I I look on LinkedIn or I look, everyone's an AI expert. Everyone's got an opinion. And this is what I love about new technology. Suddenly everyone gets excited and then, um, you know, wants to be involved. I think we will all embrace it a bit more. I don't think we will necessarily perfect where we're going in 2024, but I think you'll start to see it more. For those who adopt it early, it will mean getting ahead of your competitors. Okay. And I mean this both at a company level, but an individual level. So, one of the things I actively try and do is encourage all the teams I work with uh, to embrace it. So, for example, if I'm doing a brainstorming session, let's say it was the three of us, I'd say today, Shelley, you are going. We're not going to hear your views. You're going to be the person operating ChatGPT to generate ideas on this topic, and then next week, Bullet will be that person, right? So, the, the quicker you start to use it, the better. So, I think we'll see more of that. I, I, I'm going to be using it more in my business and with my team. Hopefully, that will bring about some of the efficiencies that we've long waited for. And the final question for you, Faris, is that if you were to offer one golden nugget of advice to business leaders, especially around the, the startup and scale-up world, what would that one golden nugget be? What I always say is 
ask one more question than you feel comfortable asking on any topic. What do you think about this? How are you feeling? Yeah. And then the, the flip side of that, if you ask more questions, you've got to listen more. So don't be like that guy who dominated 80% of the meeting. Try and make at least 50% for the other person. Fantastic. So Farish, just before we close, can you just uh, share with our audience, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Number one is come visit our website. Uh, so shiagetto.com. So shiagetto is S-H-I-A-G-E-T-O. I'm sure we'll put that in the notes. Uh, or the other place is come and find me on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I spend a disproportionate amount of my time on LinkedIn. And there's only one Faris Arenki. Uh, so I post daily um, my thoughts, my journey. I write every week. So come and find me, continue the conversation. And I'd love to hear from all your listeners. Thank you very much for your time, Faris. We've really enjoyed the conversation with you today. Definitely. Wish you all the best. And thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Shelley, that was a, uh, a fascinating and in-depth conversation with Faris, and that was full of really usable content, wasn't it? It was action-packed. There was plenty there to unpack. Yes, this was really an excellent conversation. There were so many things, it's almost hard to even think about where to begin, but maybe that's the sort of formula he puts it all under. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had this three-part formula IQ times EQ times FQ. And he made the point that these are multiplied together rather than added, because of course, if you multiply anything by zero, you get zero. Emotional quotient, intelligence quotient, and focus quotient. So I thought he made some very important points around the emotional quotient. In fact, he had an interesting example because he was talking about how People can be on different pages emotionally and yet think they're all on the same page. And he gave an example of a manager running a workshop or whatever, and he asked the person at the end, did you think the communication went well? The person said, absolutely. He said, you didn't think it was too one way? And the person said, oh, no, I, I only spoke about half the time. And of course, it was recorded. And Farris was able to show that really the person talked I think, north of 80% of the time, which was the kind of example where somebody thinks, yeah, everybody's with me and I'm understanding them and it's not really true. Well, I think uh, the first part of that equation, intelligence quotient uh, IQ, was also fascinating because it's really about solving the problem or identifying what the problem is to be solved and having everyone align around that problem. And I love his quote about Einstein talking about if he had 60 minutes to to save the world, what Einstein said was that 59 minutes he, he would spend looking at the problem and analyzing it, and therefore that would just leave him one minute to actually come up with a solution. And, you know, that that also led perfectly into the focus part of the discussion, the focus quotient. He, he gave an example of that where everyone seemed aligned, everyone seemed uh, to be focused, but then they all went out and they had a different message. So this messaging is a really important part. So can a team reflect to their teams the same message? And I think that was a very pragmatic way of looking at it. And you remember then we asked him about diversity and he had a great answer. He said, the diversity is around how you're going to solve that problem. So you got to come up with a hundred different ideas. 
And that's where you bring diversity in. And it really supports the whole system. I thought that was super. That was spot on. And don't take the lead from the manager who may come up with a few ideas. Really get that diversity of thought from many, many angles, many, many people. And pick the best one, you know. And it may not be the one that your manager thought was the best one. That's right. And then that's where the messaging is important because you've got to tell the manager. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) One last thing I'd say is he used something called the platinum rule. This is about treating others how they want to be treated. Because it's all about taking diverse people, teams, et cetera, et cetera, and pulling them together. That's what he his whole conversation was about. Next time on Startup Sensations. I just wouldn't raise money without talking to a lawyer. I wouldn't sign a term sheet. I wouldn't set up a business without understanding stock ownership and IP ownership fully. These are not long, complex discussions. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast.